From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, November 1st. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Storm cleanup continues in the Northeast, and the presidential race is back on, too. We'll hear global perspectives on the U.S. election, including this Greek woman's view from London. I'd love if the U.S. president could help Greece in some way, but if it ends up being a president that not only helps Greece but damages Greece, I'd be super annoyed because I'd, I had nothing to do with that election. There's no way I can influence that election. Keeping an eye on our election from across the pond, that's ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The powerful punch Sandy delivered to the Northeast is going to be felt for a long time to come. And today, the storm's effects were felt on the presidential campaign trail. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg announced that he is endorsing President Barack Obama's re-election. Bloomberg wrote an editorial that cited the destruction caused by Sandy and climate change as factors in his decision. We, on the other hand, are going to look at the election in a different way. From now until next Tuesday, we're going to hear stories from my colleague Marco Werman. While thousands of international journalists have descended on the U.S. right now, Marco, you have gone in the other direction. You are outside the bubble and outside the United States. For the first time, Lisa, I actually get to use those immortal words of the BBC. This is London. And this muddy green strip of water in front of me is the River Thames, of course. You can hear the trains on back of me. On the other side of the river, that beautiful building, the Houses of Parliament, Westminster, and that clock tower known as Big Ben. For many, many years, this was the center of world power. Although today I think no one would argue that Great Britain still leads the world. After all, the last century was the American century. And American leadership has most often centered on the White House, on the President of the United States. I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor. The offered hand is a reluctant fist. We shall do our share in defending peace and freedom in the world, but we shall expect others to do their share. To those neighbors and allies who share our freedom, we will strengthen our historic ties This common bond binds the grower of rice in Burma and the planter of wheat in Iowa. But here in London, this truly global city, you get the sense that things have changed, that the role of the president, the U.S. president, in the world today has changed too. And that's what I've come to London to talk with people about. We're starting off with something that's on pretty much everyone's minds here in Europe, the state and fate of the global economy. Take Spain with its crazy levels of unemployment. In the UK, the British economy is struggling to stay out of recession, swallowing the bitter medicine of austerity prescribed by lawmakers here. Italy's struggling too, and so, of course, is Greece. In fact, in the presidential race, the word Greece has become shorthand for how certain economic policies might lead to ruin. Every 
Everything they do reminds us of Greece, and we're not going to Greece. We're going to get America back to being American. Like it or not, the United States is bound up with these European economies. President Obama has publicly said that Europe needs to get its economic house in order. Yesterday, I met a Greek comedian living here in London. Her name is Katerina Vrana. Lately, she's been riffing on Greece's predicament. Because of the crisis, the smoking ban has gone. It's like, well, if people don't have money, you can't stop them smoking, smoke, smoke. So everyone's smoking indoors again. It's great. And so I asked her, do you want American leaders from the president down telling Greek lawmakers what to do when it comes to their economy? I'd love if the U.S. president could help Greece in some way. But if it ends up being a president that not only helps Greece but damages Greece, I'd be super annoyed because I'd, I had nothing to do with that election. There's no way I can influence that election. There's no way I can call someone in Minnesota and go, dude, what are you doing? Vote for the other guy. And I think that's the main crux of the problem faced by the president of the United States. You are in a position that potentially you could influence the companies that influence the economies around the world. But the countries that are being directly influenced have not voted for you or had anything to do in the selection of you to this position of power. I always see the states as a very kind of good-natured giant that wants to be really helpful but tramples on everything while turning around and go, oh, I'll help you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So Katerina Vrana's take is that the United States, if a little clumsy, wields an enormous amount of power. After all, by many measures, it's the biggest economy out there, and the dollar is still, for now, the safe haven globally. But is presidential power what's important when it comes to U.S. economic influence? We do have an interest in who the individual is, and even in spite of the fact that you know the composition of Congress and Senate makes a difference, it is the individual that matters as well. This is Priyanka Malhotra. She was born in India, lived all over the world, and now she works in international financial policy here in London. We met at the heart of British finance, near a London underground stop called Bank. Coming into this election, I think the, the two big things that will impact the rest of the world are, for instance, who's going to be the next chairman of the Fed. So although you know Bernanke has sort of um, made allusions to the fact that he, he is not seeking another term even under Obama, it's all who is Romney going to pick. And if the Republicans and Romney are really opposed to expansionary monetary and fiscal policy, then... That does have an impact on the interest rates, on the value of the dollar, on the U.S. Treasuries. What else does any president have in their toolbox at their disposal to affect the way the economy works in Europe and the rest of the world? It's what they do politically. So, you know, you... So, in, so international trade would be another example, how they decide to work with China. Now, here are examples where actually you could argue that Romney and Obama don't have different views particularly because Obama hasn't actually focused on these areas. But what do they do with military spending? Do they decide to go into more wars? Do they not decide to go into more wars? How do they engage with Europe? So what Obama and the U.S. have done very successfully recently is when the Eurozone crisis has threatened the rest of the world, is pick up the phone and said, you will sort this out this weekend. You will take an action and put that pressure. That is what um, an international president who sees his responsibility globally would do versus someone who just sees his responsibility domestically and, un and believes that 
that the rest of Europe and, and Asia does not impact them. Similarly, um, regulation is another is another um, tool. The U.S. doesn't exactly have gold stars for implementing international regulation. They were the ones that came up with Basel II, forced the rest of the world to do it, and have not implemented so far on banks. So just for clarity, Basel II is a capital regime for banks that the rest of the world implemented and the largely implemented, and the U.S. has still not implemented. It, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that the U.S., the leadership in the U.S., the president, have kind of treated financial treaties like Basel II in the same way they did Kyoto with climate change. Yeah, spot on. You, you tell the rest of the world what to do, you hold the rest of the world accountable, and you don't actually implement it. This is London's St. Pancras International, a giant railway station with a cavernous vaulted roof. It's where trains depart for continental Europe. Late afternoon, you'll find a cross-section of Europeans milling about, waiting for trains or, yes, playing an available upright piano in the center of the concourse. I asked them about the role of the U.S. president, too. I think the president has to put some confidence onto the people that are working with the economy. Maria Moraes is a lawyer from Lisbon. The financial markets and the companies, and they, they have to tackle unemployment. But the main thing for now is to put the, the accounts in order and then to create jobs, and we'll pick it up from there. I believe that's the leverage we need. Lucy Terrer is French and even dragging a suitcase. She's chic and well-turned-out. She's a personal shopper at the Galerie Lafayette, the famous department store in Paris. It's also said that the United States is the world's biggest economic superpower. It used to be. It used to be. It used to be not anymore. Uh, now we'll say it's more China, it's more Brazilian, it's uh, Russia. She wasn't alone. Oliver Woolard works in finance in London. He had this take. I think that the president doesn't have as much effect on the economy as he'd like to think he is. I think it's the other way around. The economy runs the, runs the presidency. So I think he's a slave to the economy rather than the other way around. Now, I doubt any incumbent president would agree with that observation. The last person I spoke with at St. Pancras was Martin Ironman. He's German and studied at Harvard. Today, he's a journalist in the UK and also part of the media team for Occupy London, a group similar to Occupy Wall Street. For him, the idea that Americans can intervene and fix things is precisely the problem. I think Europeans, by and large, have been very skeptical of attempts you know, by Americans to, to intervene here. Europeans would say, listen, these are our problems. A lot of them might have started in the U.S., but isn't that precisely the reason why we should not listen to you, right? First, you know, you have this whole crisis that starts, in a way, on the ground in New York City that starts with the American mortgage crisis, that starts with the housing bubble. And then, you know, you bail out your banks, you get your economy under control, and all of a sudden you think, you know, those same people who were in power five or ten years ago are now in a position to tell us what to do, right? That doesn't mean that European leaders are in a better position, but you're responsible, right? You're responsible and you're not in the position to offer us the advice that we need, right? You are the doctors who fail to treat the patient in the U.S. Why should you do any better on the European patient? It's funny. I uh, just spoke with a lovely French woman downstairs who was going back to Paris. She's a personal shopper. She's wearing a pink fur coat. And she said something quite similar to what you were just saying in her own way, that the U.S. time at the top, it's over. We don't look to the U.S. anymore. We look to the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China. I mean, is that where Europe is looking now? the kind of American model 
of writing constitutions and writing economic policy is not necessarily the model that a lot of countries are now following. You know, and I realize that's a very touchy subject in the U.S. where people were bickering and fighting over whether the U.S. is in decline or not. But, you know, I think that's a fairly factual realization that there's a lot of things going on in the world that are not influenced and not driven and not led by the United States. And to me, it seems like the, na the natural reaction to that kind of world order to me would be to, to embrace it and try to find your role within it instead of saying, if we're not leading you, you know, good luck. Good luck, you're on your own. Now, some people say the U.S. still has a moral responsibility to help poorer countries. I heard some sharp analysis on that front. I think the U.S. It has um, trillions of debt to China, and if they want to help poor countries, they also have to be thinking about paying off their debt. So it's going to be kind of hard for them to help the poor countries if they've already got a debt to millions of other countries. That was Dylan. She's 13 and goes to London's Northumberland Park Community School. She and her classmates have some pretty firm ideas about what the next American president should be concentrating on. Here's Lauren, and then you'll hear from Zubaida. They could help afterwards once they pay the debt and sort their country out first, but they shouldn't really get involved because there's nothing to do with them. Sounds like you're saying the U.S. should lead by example. Yeah. Straighten out its house first and then help yeah. other places. Yeah, I agree with Lauren. I think that they shouldn't worry about other countries because the more they use in other country, like, they could actually save that to like repay their debt and everything. That was Zubaida and before her, Lauren and Dilan, all students at the Northumberland Park Community School here in London. And that is the world's Marco Werman with us from London now. Those kids seem to be paying quite a bit of attention, Marco, and a uh, big range of people who you spoke with. So they mm. really are paying attention over there to what's happening over here. Oh, absolutely, Lisa. I mean, even from the point of view of a kind of pure horse race now, it's become a more gripping uh, election and people are getting ready for their election night parties. As for those kids, I don't think they'll be staying up uh, till 3 a.m. on Tuesday, but we'll be hearing more from them next week, and they've got a lot to say. Okay, Marco, what's coming up with you in London tomorrow? Well, one of the key issues any president is going to have to deal with is the wave of change sweeping the Middle East. As we know all too well, what America says and does could have a huge impact there on millions of lives. So I'll be talking about the Arab Spring and democracy with two Libyan writers and poets who live here in London. Good. Looking forward to it. The world's Marco Werman. Thank you. You're welcome. This is The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Israel has played a big part lately in the U.S. presidential campaign. The country was mentioned more than 30 times during the last Obama-Romney debate. Mitt Romney, in particular, has sought to portray himself as a more loyal friend of the Jewish state than the president is. But even if the former Massachusetts governor is an impassioned supporter of Israel, his Mormon church has not had it easy there. Daniel Estrin reports now on the rather peculiar relationship between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Israeli government. There's a lot more to this place than what you'll learn from the video they play on the public tour. 
Welcome to the Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. People in Jerusalem call it the Mormon University. We are pleased to share with you this spectacular view of the old city and the distinctive architecture and spirit of this building. It's a satellite campus of Brigham Young University. Each year it hosts about 200 students for study abroad programs. And it really is a spectacular piece of real estate. It's a 125,000-square-foot limestone building that slopes down a hill in eight levels. And it's got a panoramic view of the whole city, the Mount of Olives, the ancient walls of the old city, and the city's centerpiece, the Golden Dome of the Rock. On a tour of the campus, school official Kent Jackson walks me through a manicured garden and shows me the school's auditorium, where Mormon students and staff hold weekly prayers. It's got a massive organ with more than 3,000 pipes. We think it's the finest organ in the Middle East. What the tour doesn't discuss is the wrenching saga when the center was being built in the mid-1980s. Israel's ultra-Orthodox Jewish community was fiercely opposed to the building. Rabbis feared the Mormons were coming to convert Jews. There were daily demonstrations in front of City Hall. Amir Cheshin remembers them well. At the time, he was an advisor to the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kolek. Every day they were uh, gathering in front of the building. When Teddy arrived, they started to shout. They raised their banners and signs. They, they were shouting mostly against the Mormons. Israeli lawmakers considered canceling the multi-million dollar project. But 154 members of Congress sent a letter to Israeli lawmakers suggesting that would put U.S.-Israel relations on the line. Israel's government relented, but under one condition. The Mormons had to promise not to proselytize. As part of the agreement, church officials prevent Mormon students and any Mormons visiting the country from even talking about their faith with Israelis. Cheshin, the former mayor's advisor, was recently on a tour of the Mormon Center. I wanted to hear from them something about the Mormons. They don't spend one word about the Mormon community, the Mormon belief, or the Mormon uh, religion. Who, who are you? What are you doing? What, what is your uh, belief? He says a Mormon official showed the tour group a framed document, a pact that the Mormon church made with the Israeli government not to proselytize. Now, here's the strange thing about that pact. Israel hasn't made any other church or religious denomination sign such an agreement. Proselytizing is legal, but most churches in the country just don't dare do it. For Mormons in Jerusalem, it's a delicate issue. Spreading the gospel is a central pillar of the church, says Brother Jackson. We've just made promises that were uh, taken in good faith at the time that we built this facility, that uh, we wouldn't do anything that uh, approached in any way what you describe rightly as being part of the central uh, function of the church, which is to talk about our church with other people. Israel isn't the only country in the Middle East, or anywhere else, that doesn't allow Mormon missionaries. But Jerusalem isn't just anywhere else. It's different. The Book of Mormon begins in Jerusalem. The founder of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith, professed to be a descendant of an ancient Jerusalemite called Lehi. And Mormon belief holds that Jesus will return to Jerusalem. Still, church officials say they are not going to ask Israel to revisit the non-proselytizing agreement. We recognize that we've been very blessed to be here in this country. And it seems to me like it's a pretty small price to pay for the benefits that our students get out of being here in this country. Over the summer, when Mitt Romney made a high-profile visit to Jerusalem... He prayed at the Western Wall, one of Judaism's holiest sites. 
but he didn't visit the Mormon Center. Romney's been there before. Of course, Mormonism isn't just a sensitive topic in Israel. Surveys show that much of the American public is still wary of the Mormon Church, even though, come next week, America may vote in its first Mormon president. And if that happens, Mormons in Jerusalem, who've kept their beliefs to themselves for two decades, will likely start getting a lot of questions from curious Israelis. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Another story from Israel now, this one 24 years in the making. Israel acknowledged for the first time today that in 1988 it killed a deputy of the late Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. Israel had long been suspected of assassinating Khalil al-Wazir. He was better known as Abu Jihad. He was killed in a raid on his home in Tunis. Israel considered Abu Jihad an arch-terrorist. Palestinians, though, saw him as a hero. This documentary was shown earlier this year on Palestinian TV. It describes Abu Jihad as the Prince of Martyrs, and it lists the many operations that he carried out or planned. The most notorious was the 1978 hijacking of an Israeli bus. More than 37 Israelis were killed after a highway chase and a shootout. In a video shown earlier this year on Israeli TV, Abu Jihad was seen instructing his troops at a meeting. He said, we will turn the light in Tel Aviv to dark. God willing, there will be rivers of blood flowing in the streets and there will be total destruction. That particular attack was thwarted. Israel rarely admits responsibility for assassination, so nobody's sure why Israel's military censor has allowed an Israeli newspaper to publish the story of how Abu Jihad died. The article includes a 12-year-old interview with a now-deceased Israeli commando. He said he shot Abu Jihad, quote, without hesitation. Among the others involved in orchestrating the hit was the current Israeli defense minister, Ehud Barak. We begin our geo-quiz today with a couple of what-ifs. What if the players on the San Francisco Giants decided to stay together in the afterlife and pitched in to build a team crypt? Or what if Lady Gaga arranged to build her final resting place in the shape of a pyramid guarded by two sphinxes? Well, there is a cemetery in Chile where such memorials really do exist. The cemetery is located on the outskirts of Chile's cultural and political capital. Nice view for eternity. Looks out on the tall peaks of the Andes. As we'll hear later in the program, it's a place buzzing with song and prayer as families come to spend time with both the living and the dead. Try to name Chile's biggest city, founded nearly 500 years ago by a Spanish conquistador. and a lot more coming up in the second half of the program. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a hurricane hunter recalls flying through an especially ferocious storm. 
we can see on the radar that this is going to be a rough ride. So we had everybody strap in tight, kind of hang on. But as we went in there and we experienced this basically airborne tornado, the plane basically tried to flip over on us. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. There's been a lot of flooding to report around the globe this week. Of course, New York and New Jersey are still reeling from the impact of Superstorm Sandy. Subway and highway tunnels remain filled with water today in lower Manhattan. In New Jersey, there's concern that thousands of people may still be trapped by floodwaters in the city of Hoboken. We Americans, though, are not alone in dealing with such news. In a few minutes, we're going to hear about the Italian city of Venice, which has been inundated by high tides that are extraordinary even for that watery city. But first, we're going to turn to southern India, where more than 100,000 people have been evacuated due to the latest cyclone to hit the country's southeastern coast. The BBC's Sanjoy Majumdar is on the scene right now. I understand that you are heading into the second night of being battered by this cyclone called Neelam. What is the latest with the storm and, uh, and its impact? Well, the storm itself has quietened significantly. Um, it made landfall yesterday with very heavy winds, um, about 100 kilometers per hour, which brought trees down, brought power lines down. A lot of farmland, we understand, has been destroyed, as has roads. But the loss of life has been minimal, uh, partly because the authorities were very quick to evacuate something like 100 to 150,000 people living all along the coast who were moved up to higher ground. And is that a sign of, of uh, good preparation for the cyclone? I think it is. That's definitely the sense we've got from speaking to a lot of people here, that uh, they felt that the authorities here were very quick to respond. I think they were helped with a slice of good luck, uh, which is that the storm uh, wasn't as intense as had originally been predicted and also didn't last quite as long as people had thought, but certainly they were very well prepared. Yeah, we should mention that uh, this is a fairly frequent occurrence in this part of the world, as destructive as the cyclones can be. There is, though, a report, I understand, of an oil tanker that ran aground, and some of the sailors are among the dead from the storm. Is there right now a possibility of an oil spill? Well, in fact, that ship is very close to where I am. I've spent much of the day looking at it. Uh, it's just off the main beach here in Chennai, about two to 300 meters most of the sailors on board were rescued, but there were five who had been missing uh, all through the day, and the fear that they are among the dead. And the second problem that you mentioned, uh, the fear of an oil slick, the Coast Guard uh, and the Navy is making uh, an attempt to try and tow the ship back into the sea, but it's going to be a lengthy process. Uh, Sandra, you know that uh, here on the east coast of the United States, we are still dealing with the after effects of Hurricane Sandy. Um, we are not used to weather quite as intense as Sandy has, at least in this part of the country. I wonder if you can talk about the uh, frequency of cyclones in the area where you are. Well, it's, it's certainly something that people here are very used to, uh, particularly this time of the year. Um, the Bay of Bengal, uh, which is the main sea off the east coast of India, is known to be very volatile. 
this year and the last year, we've, we've had cyclonic storms which haven't actually created as much damage as previous ones. And again, part of it is due to better preparation. That's the BBC's India correspondent, Sanjay Majumdar in Chennai, India. Thanks very much, Sanjay. You're welcome. Parts of Venice, Italy, including the famous San Marco Square, were flooded this week. A high tide forced tourists to wade through the city in knee-high waters. Water levels are about 55 inches above normal. Makeshift footbridges were created to allow people to walk above the floodwaters. Rafael Bras is provost at Georgia Tech. He's also an expert on flooding in Venice and the efforts to protect the city, which we're going to talk about. But first, Rafael, seems to me this is a story that we hear quite often. So let's go to you for a reality check. Is Venice flooding happening more frequently? The number of floods uh, over the last few decades, uh, certainly over the last 100 years, have been uh, documented to be increasing in frequency. Floods over 110 centimeters are on the order of 50 inches. For example, in the decade of the 1950s, would have occurred around 10 to 15 times and now are now occurring about 50 to 55 times a year. And does the water recede eventually? Yes, the water recedes eventually. These events normally can last uh, six hours. Uh, they can last longer, like the one yesterday, uh, the last few days have been 14 hours. Why is this happening more frequently? I think there are two main explanations of why this happens. Uh, early on, this, the region, the lagoon of Venice, uh, was sinking very quickly. And that was largely due to the pumping of water for industrial uses uh, around the lagoon. Controls were put in place back in the 1970s. The rate of sinking has reduced considerably. So the one big threat that still continues unabated is sea level rise. And that uh, will, by all accounts, will continue and is certainly occurring in the Adriatic. Well, this is something, obviously, that's been on our minds here in the U.S. as well, the sea level rise uh, through all this week and even prior to that. What, then, are you doing uh, in the Venice area to try and hold back the sea? The whole idea is to separate the sea from the lagoon or the body, the smaller body of water you want to protect in times of high tides. So the idea is to close off the inlets into the Lagoon of Venice, and there are three inlets into the Lagoon of Venice, during periods of high tide or high flood conditions. So that's a, a hugely ambitious project. Are you concerned that at the rate of the sea level rise and the flooding that you say is happening more frequently in Venice, that there may be significant destruction before the project is even completed? The project actually uh, probably will not be completed until 2016. Huh. And the reason for that uh, is not engineering or problems with engineering. It's going very, very well. It has to do with the appropriate financing uh, and the flow of resources to keep the pace of construction going. And as you know, uh, all around the world, uh, finances is, are a real issue these days. You mean is it going to cost more than the $8 billion that had been estimated? No, it's not. Uh, but it's still it, hard to get the $8 billion. It, it's, just, it's just getting the financing flowing uh, as originally intended. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, is it reasonable to think or overly optimistic to think and hope that Venice will exist as the beautiful historic city that it is 100 years from now? I believe so with this project. It will. And, but needless to say, uh, the future not only of Venice but of every 
coastal region in the world is something that goes beyond the region of Venice and something that we as, uh, as citizens of the world have to worry about. Yeah, even now to the coast of New Jersey and New York. Absolutely. All right, thank you. Rafael Bras, provost at Georgia Institute of Technology. Nice to speak with you. Thank you very much. It is because floods and storms such as Sandy are global concerns that the U.S. Air Force deploys some of its men and women into the middle of catastrophic events. Major Brad Boudreau is an Air Force Reserve pilot with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. The squadron is also known as the Hurricane Hunters. It's based out of Biloxi, Mississippi. Major Boudreau has spent thousands of hours flying C-130 planes into the most severe storms, about 10,000 feet up. He and his colleagues gather vital information that satellites can't see and drones can't collect, and they share the data with any nation that needs it. In the case of Sandy, that included Haiti, Cuba, and Canada. Major Boudreau flew into Hurricane Sandy more times than he can remember. You know, to be honest with you, I lost count. I know that the last flight we did uh, six penetrations through the center of the storm. Six. And I believe the flight before that, maybe four or five. So how long does each one take? It depends. Sometimes we're on station anywhere from four to six hours in the storm environment. Last flight, I believe we were delayed almost six hours in, in the storm. Wow. Tell us what you were doing. We're flying through the middle of the storm. So we go on the outer bands of the storm. We're collecting data as far as pressure, wind, temperature, all that information. We're constantly collecting it and we're taking readings. And what we're basically doing is we're tracking it as far as pinpointing the exact center location of the storm. Take us on one of your flights through Sandy. To be honest, it's uh, sometimes it can be long and boring, but uh, there <laughs> are plenty so. of times also where it can be extremely exciting and a little scary. It takes a, a real veteran, a hurricane hunter, to say sometimes it can be pretty boring flying through a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Um, every storm's different. I, every time we talk to somebody about that, I, I try to emphasize how every storm's a little different. And what was Sandy like? Uh, Sandy, Sandy was different in the sense that here we had this tropical storm that when we followed it down by Cuba, uh, it was all the normal characteristics that we would expect to see in a hurricane where as your stronger winds are, are close to your eyewall, closer to the center of the storm. Once this thing uh, started building up and it started mixing up with some of the winter air and in in this jet stream coming down from the north, the storm actually became a, a very large storm. It was not a very powerful storm, but we were seeing hurricane force winds. They were up to 150 miles from the center of the storm. And is that unusual? So that is unusual. Usually... The stronger winds are much closer to the eyewall in the center of the storm. This one, when we got closer into the storm, the winds really were not that strong at the center, which was a, a little unusual compared to all the other storms that I've flown. So when something like the Hurricane Sandy has a wider grasp like that, something that you say you hadn't really seen before, how do you feel that when you're on the, the C-130? It just depends. You know, when it's mixing up and the dry air is mixing up with some of the moisture air, a lot of times you get a lot of convection in the storm in that area, and, and these things can build up pretty fast. And that's when it, it has the most effect on us because you're dealing now with these updrafts and downdrafts. And we were in Raphael a few weeks ago, and we were experiencing this. It was transitioning from a tropical storm into a hurricane. So it was barely a hurricane. 
and it doubled in size while we were in the storm. No and way. we had a lot of severe turbulence to extreme turbulence. And it was probably the roughest ride I've ever been on. So this is, uh, you're talking about Hurricane Raphael. This uh, was Raphael. Right yeah. around Bermuda, correct? Right, close to the Bermuda Triangle. And it we can see on the radar that this was going to be a rough ride. We can tell by the indications on our radar scope that this was going to be very turbulent. So I did tell everybody in the plane, hey, make sure you're strapping in. It's going to get very bumpy. So we had everybody strap in tight, kind of hang on for the ride. But as we went in there and we experienced this basically airborne tornado, the plane basically tried to flip over on us. I had to go ahead and take the airplane and I, I pushed the nose down towards the ground uh, just to get the airspeed because we were at max power trying to maintain that 10,000 feet. So what's the threat there? Uh, the threat is that you stall the airplane out and the airplane just falls out of the sky. Airspeed keeps you flying. And I, I was actually had a student on board, a new co-pilot flying with us. And so I was actually instructing her at the same time as, as flying through the storm. So as this is going on, I'm also trying to explain to her, I'm going to lose some altitude in order to gain my airspeed back. And that's exactly what we did. We we put the nose down, got our airspeed back. We climbed back up to our altitude and it was back to a normal, well, what we consider a normal flight. Were you, <laughs> were you still in the hurricane, in the cyclone within the hurricane at that point or had you flown out? Uh, we were still in the cyclone. We were right in the eye wall of the storm. We were basically in the worst possible area of the storm at the worst possible time when it was rapidly intensifying. While we were in the storm, in the eye wall, this storm had actually doubled in size. Did your mother know you do this? <laughs> uh, she prays a lot. Major Brad Boudreau, hurricane hunter. Ever wonder what the eye of a tropical storm looks like from above? We've got a slideshow. It's at theworld.org. Sandy's knockout punch to the northeast U.S. has also captured the attention of cartoonists around the globe. The world's cartoon editor, Carol Hills, is here with me right now. What kind of themes are you seeing this week? Well, some are the ones you might expect. A lot of Statue of Liberties shielding themselves from the rain or using an umbrella to no effect or practically falling over from rain. There was a Frankenstein as Frankenstorm. There was also one by an Australian cartoonist about sort of the perfect storm, but it was more using that idea to show the different types of voters across the U.S., you know, truculent trillionaires and soccer moms and mapping out the U.S. in a particular way that created a perfect storm of an election okay. in terms of appealing to all these voters. So, so there's a turn toward presidential politics there. Lots of presidential politics, all about the impact of Sandy on the election, given that immediately people were talking about things like voters can't cast their early votes right now. There's hindrances to that in certain parts of the country. A lot of Romney and Obama running around with umbrellas that have, which have folded inside out, and they're kind of looking like a distressed Mary Poppins. There's another one that sort of shows a couple arms reaching up from underwater, and one of them is trying to stuff a ballot into a floating ballot box. So there's a lot of kind of how the storm and, and the raucous the storm has caused on the election. And of course, there's kind of a classic. It's a little, you know, out of taste, but a newscaster those poor newscasters who have to stand out there in their foul weather jackets against the pouring rain and waves, and he's saying, I better win a bleeping journalism award for this. <laughs> the world's Carol Hills. Thank you. She keeps an eye out on how political cartoonists interpret news events and occasionally create them. Thanks a lot, Carol. You're welcome, Lisa. You can see what cartoonists around the world are saying about Superstorm Sandy on our Tumblr page. That and other global cartoons at pritheworld.tumblr.com. Canadian singer and songwriter Nelly Furtado finding inspiration in Kenya, the revolution in Libya, and in a book by Isabel Allende. 
music and conversation with Nelly Furtado tomorrow on The World. Our global hit and more coming up. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The capital of the South American nation of Chile is a bustling cosmopolitan city. There are so many things to see in Santiago. The answer to our geo-quiz, one place to visit, is the city's general cemetery. Okay, may sound a little bit creepy, but the cemetery is a popular destination for families and even for tourists. And as Olivia Krellen reports, some visitors go there to explore Chile's history. When you arrive at the cemetery on Saturdays, the day for funerals, it feels like you're outside a buzzing city mall with cars parked around the block. This is, in fact, one of Chile's oldest and most sacred spots. Families come from all over the city to spend their weekends together, with both the living and the dead. Alejandra Jara and her daughter Gabriela have been coming to take care of her mother's grave every week since she passed away two years ago. Yes, I come every week, every week since November 2010. In another part of the cemetery is my father. We'll go and visit him too. Together, all together, my siblings, my mother. It's beautiful here. It's peaceful. The huge 200-year-old cemetery is home to around 2 million graves. These include famous Chileans like poet Victor Jara, singer Violeta Parra, and most of Chile's presidents. Pinochet, who took power in a 1973 coup, is not here. But there are monuments to the many desparecidos, or disappeared, from the time of his dictatorship. Our tour gives locals and tourists a history of Chile through the stories of the people, famous and ordinary, buried here. From the mother who killed herself out of desperation for her lost children and still searches for them among the graves, to the exhumation of socialist president Salvador Allende, who took his own life during the 1973 coup, the tour brings the tombs to life. Camilo Oretz, a student, said the tour taught him many new things about the history of his country. I have learned a lot about the history of Chile, things that happened in the past. It was amazing, things that I had never heard before. I learned a lot. The tour guide is dressed as a scary monk, and in the dark, the tour can actually feel a bit spooky. (laughs) Laura Kelland is a British tourist. I'm very scared that there's actors hiding and they're going to jump out on me. So I'm a bit distracted. (laughs) Tombs range from crowded tenement-style living to more lavish structures. In the Avenue of the Architects, Egyptian-style tombs sit alongside Greco-Roman and Gothic mansions. There are also group mausoleums housing entire soccer teams or the likes of the Union of Milkmen. It's a world within a world, says Edgar Nain, who has worked here all his life. While the residents are stuck in the past, the cemetery itself has modernized in recent years. Funerals are scheduled via a departures board, and tomb architects even advertise their work by carving a discreet telephone number somewhere on a grave. The desire of Chileans to be close to their loved ones will not die making the cemetery not just a tourist attraction, but also a vital part of everyday life. For the world, I'm Olivia Krellin in Santiago, Chile. You can take a digital tour of Santiago's bustling general cemetery. We've got a great slideshow. It's at theworld.org. Mali in West Africa is a country broken in two. It's been in freefall since a military coup in March. Tuareg rebels took advantage of the power vacuum and seized control of the north. Now radical Islamists have gained the upper hand there, and they're imposing a harsh form of Sharia law. 
One casualty is Molly's once vibrant music scene. Reporter Marissa Neff recently spoke with members of the band Terracaft from Molly's troubled north. Azawad in North Mali is the area that produced the desert-swept blues of the band Tenarawen and the late Ali Farcatore. But now, all Western and non-devotional music has been outlawed in Azawad. Militants have burned instruments and amplifiers, and musicians have been threatened with amputation or worse, for doing what they love. One of the many groups affected by what's happening is the Tureg band Tarakaft. The name means caravan in Tamashek. The leader, Diara, was a founding member of Tanarawen. He left to join Tarakaft, and today the group is a full-on family affair, fronted by Diara and two of his nephews, Sanu and Abdallah Ag Ahmed. days, Diara lives over the border in Algeria. When I spoke with him, he expressed bewilderment over the current state of affairs at home. Though he wants the nomadic lifestyle of Turegs to be protected, he hopes that Mali will be united again as one nation. I don't understand what is happening in Mali. There has always been conflict between North and South. But things are different now with the Tuareg rebels and the Islamic extremists. Like many Tuaregs, I'm just watching the situation because it's so difficult to understand what the future holds. 28-year-old guitarist Sanu is part of the next generation of Mali's desert bluesmen. He was born into this music and learned to play when he was a child. Now that playing guitar is forbidden in his homeland, he lives in Europe and Canada when he's not on tour. When I asked him if exile is a choice, he noted his limited options. It's a choice because my life is as a musician. With the strict Islamic laws, there's no way to live in Mali today. When I asked if he wants to return to Mali one day, he said, Of course. The UN Security Council has approved the idea of an African-led force to help Mali's army defeat the Islamists in the north. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has been pressing neighboring Algeria to take a central role. But at this point, it's unlikely that Sanu will go home anytime soon. For The World, I'm Marissa Neff. Marissa Neff met the band last week at the World Music Expo in Greece, and you can read her blog post from Romex at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening.
a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.